How y'all doing? Y'all good? I'm doing well. Who asked? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, as always, uh, I say this, I think, all the time. I'm, I'm always grateful to uh, be up here uh, with you guys, but particularly just the honor it is to always preach God's word, uh, the kind of weight that it comes with. I'm, I'm grateful for it, though at times I wish I didn't have it, but I am really grateful to be here. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and, um, and jump right in. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that you um, give us to worship you. Thank you for uh, making us more than our thoughts and our feelings. Thank you for giving us embodied uh, experiences. Thank you that we are bodies and that we uh, live in time and space. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, grant me the wisdom uh, and I think the pace that I need uh, to share from your word today, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you know, I said this in the first service, and I meant it. Uh, I really am grateful to, to be here and preach the word. Uh, but congratulations to you guys on the installment of your priest, uh, Amy. It's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> Amy's a great person. I've had the chance over the last several months to get to know her being here and having her lead the, the liturgy uh, when I preach. Uh, I do have to talk to her about the scheduling. This passage that she gave me today is very hard. <laughs> uh, so I have to talk to her about assigning me this task. <laughs> but no, listen, it's, it's a really difficult passage. And on that, I want to just offer some kind of preface thoughts. Uh, over the last month and a half, I've been on a tour with some friends, uh, traveling uh, different parts of the country uh, with an event that we are describing as an immersive conversation about grief and hope. Uh, and if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me talk about uh, the movie that my son and I made. Uh, that we screened here. Oh, appreciate that. All right. Uh, it'll be for sale soon, so maybe you can cheer for, <laughs> cheer with your purchases as well. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but we also had a screening here where we talked about grief and, and we shared our thoughts. And every night on this tour, we all had the responsibility to kind of share our thoughts and give our talks and relive moments that were really difficult. Uh, and every time I got on stage, it was very hard, but I, I counted it very sacred work um, because in real time, I had to share some of the, these feelings, these experiences, but also answer the real-time questions that people had around grief, which is a shared experience that we all have no matter where you come from. Um, I counted that talk, those talks, as very sacred work. Yesterday, I had the honor of... Uh, officiating the wedding of a young lady who I baptized seven years ago. And my son asked me yesterday before uh, the ceremony started, he said, do you get nervous uh, doing public speaking, things like this? And without hesitating one bit, I said, absolutely. Every single time, without fail, I get nervous. And I explained to him that I get nervous for uh, two reasons. One is a bit more practical. The other one's uh, more philosophical. The practical reason is... 
have I done a good job at making what I, whatever it is that I'm communicating understandable? Right? That's the goal, that, that it would be understandable. Uh, and then the second reason is a bit more philosophical. I ask myself the question, or I ask God the question, particularly if it's a sermon, God, have I filtered this idea through a healthy lens so that people can go from understanding to transformation? It's one thing to understand something. It's another thing for that thing that you understand, that idea, that concept, to radically change the way that you show up in the world. And I wonder if I've done the best that I could to process that idea, that content, that passage through a healthy lens so that it's presented in such a way that it goes from understanding to transformation. Now, part of the reason why it's nerve-wracking is because I have no control over it, ultimately. God is going to do the transforming. He'll do whatever he needs to do with whatever I present uh, to change people. But I say all of that to say, church, that I think I'm going to pull a Jesus today. And I am going to ask more questions and pose more wonderings than I am answer questions. Because I think this passage deserves that. I think the passage that we'll read today deserves me to pose questions and pose wonderings more than me trying to answer. I may offer some of my thoughts on how I read this passage, uh, but hopefully you hear me posing a perspective that hopefully offers understanding and leads uh, to transformation. Cool? And then I'm going to have a talk with Amy about this passage. Uh, so no, uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Long passage, but just hold, uh, stick with me. Uh, you'll see it on the screen there in the NRSV, but I'm reading from the CSB, which I think has some important differences. Uh, Jesus talking to uh, the disciples and the crowd. For it is just like a man to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on the journey. Immediately the man who had received the five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with the two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See what you have, uh, excuse me, what you have, you have what is yours. 
His master then replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I have not scattered, then you would have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant in the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes. All right, look, a a few things about parables before I share some thoughts. Parables feel irresistibly allegorical. What I mean by that is it feels nearly impossible to not allegorize parables, to not give them some detached meaning from the context that they were shared in and with the scenarios that they were shared with. Jesus literally says things like, it is like. Then he goes on to tell the story. And he does that, it feels almost as if to directly invite us to prioritize the meaning of the story over the details of the story. He says it is like almost as if to say the characters and the scenarios of this story don't matter as much as what they're pointing to. I don't think that's entirely true. In fact, I think That Jesus shares certain characters and scenarios not as dispensable tools or vehicles to get to his point. But I think he uses certain characters and certain scenarios under certain contexts as a way to connect and highlight the everyday life of the people that he's talking to, to the life of what? The kingdom of God is like. What I mean to say is that Jesus uses these stories that are so easy to try to detach from the context. He uses everyday language, familiar language, so that people can know that the reign of God, the power of God, is not something otherworldly, but rather something that can exist in your everyday life. But the power and the reign of God isn't this mystical idea of how we should imagine it, but a more it lives in our everyday on the ground. Jesus tells stories not to offer us a disembodied spiritual lesson, but rather to help the disciples then and us now to see that the kingdom of God is here. Luke chapter 17, verse 21, the disciples, uh, Jesus comes onto the scene, and one of the very first things that he says to them is, repent, the kingdom of God is here, or it is uh, at hand. So he uses this language 
to help us see the world differently, the world that we live in, not to fantasize about another world that's coming, but that God came to this world and that his power, his reign can actually exist here on the ground among us. And to be honest, y'all, I think that this is the genius of Jesus's parables. They contain in them plain and familiar scenarios so that his audiences would know that God's power was very possible in this world. Jesus told stories because he's trying to get us to see the world differently. This is perhaps the reason why Jesus in Mark chapter 8 says to his disciples and the Pharisees that were uh, watching in the background. He says to them, do you have eyes and yet fail to see? That from the very onset, Jesus' mission was to try to help the disciples see the world differently because he had arrived. And that his arrival, something that we'll celebrate in the next few weeks, his arrival began the change of the way that we would exist in this world. Jesus told two kinds of parables. Parables that attempted to reveal and critique the way the world was, and parables that offered a vision of the way the world could be. Two kinds of parables. Parables that revealed and critiqued the way that the world was, which is why we get parables like uh, the rich man and the beggar. That story shows the disparity of classes and people. But parables that also give us a fresh vision for what the world could look like. I, I almost ima- I see it like imagination. Parables that that feed our imagination of what the world can look like. And that's why we get parables like the kingdom of God is like a young child. And then he goes on and he tells us that story. And this brings us to the parable that we just read, the parable of the talents. I think this parable does both. It reveals and critiques the way the world is. But it also offers us fresh vision for what the world could be under the reign of God's love. How does the the parable uh, critique our world? Let me begin by highlighting what's celebrated in the story and what's castigated in the story or what's punished in the story. I think we learn how this parable critiques our world by virtue of what's celebrated in the very story and what's punished in the story. What's celebrated in the story is a return on investment. But not just a return on investment. An exorbitant amount of return on investments. Look, it is so important to realize that the word talent here 
isn't describing your ability to play the piano. It's so important to realize that the word talent here isn't describing your ability to do a backflip perfectly. That this isn't describing talent in the way that we use it in the English language. This is not about skill nor ability. That the word talent here is a form of currency. And that, church, is so important to the way that we understand this story. That if we rip from this story the fact that talent doesn't mean skill or ability, but that it is a form of currency of that day and time, if we rip that from the story, we miss that Jesus is addressing economic realities to the people that he's talking to. That at the very basis, what he's saying has to do with the economic realities of his audience. Talent, church. Talent was the one talent was the equivalent of 20 years, 20 years salary. That's bonkers. <laughs> Which means that the eight talents... That he gave to his servants, five to one, two to the other, one to the other, to the third. That the eight talents that the man gave his servants equal to what a lot of scholars equate to 2.5 million dollars. <laughs> Which means that 2.1 of that went to the first two servants. So when verse 19 tells us that when the man came back from his long journey, which we don't know how long, it was long. When verse 19 tells us that the man came back and settled accounts with his servants, the first two servants doubled, doubled what the man had given them. That is $4.2 million. That is a bonkers amount of money for that time. I mean, it's a, it's a wild number for today's standards. That historical footnote is so important. Jesus is not talking to people who needed to guess the dynamics of the story that he was offering. Jesus is not sharing this story to an audience that needs help understanding the dynamics of this parable. Jesus is talking to poor farmers and fishermen who live under the rule of the powerful and the rich elites. This is who he's talking to. They're not doing guesswork. When Jesus introduces the story and he says, the man gave this five talents to one servant, two talents to another one, and one talent to a, to a third one, his audience knew who this rich man was. They knew the kind of person that Jesus was describing when he said a man that had this amount of money gave this amount of money to his servants. They, there was no guesswork here for his audience. They knew exactly 
who he was talking about. That Jesus was talking about every leader whose greed and hunger for power has kept them, the poor class, the lower class, in the margins. This is every person in the Herodian family. I mean, you just read the early parts of the New Testament and you realize that the Herodian family, every person that was in leadership in that family led with cruelty and abuse of the people that they led. That they overtaxed them. That they were even willing to break Jewish customs to keep themselves in power. That's every person. When, when Jesus introduces this man in the parable, I'm sure that across the minds of all the audience was Herod, his sons, his daughter, who was eventually the one that got John the Baptist's uh, uh, head. This is every Roman leader that oppressed the Jewish community, especially the poor of the Jewish community. There is no guesswork for the audience that Jesus is talking to when he introduces this man that had an absurd amount of money. I shared this earlier. Um, you know... I always, or I, I, I try to do my best to come to Scripture as if having a conversation uh, with the author and ultimately with God. And sometimes in those conversations, they say things that rile me up, that excite me. And other times, they say things that make me very uncomfortable. And this is one of them. Because not only does the audience that Jesus is talking to understand who this man is after describing them, they understand exactly what kind of person this is. But then Jesus gets to the part of the story where they celebrate the first two servants. When the story celebrates the two servants for doubling the man's money, I imagine that Jesus' audience grew somewhat suspicious of these two servants. Why? Well, for starters, in a time that predates the stock market, hedge funds, and e-trading, for these two servants to double such a large sum of money feels unthinkable, almost impossible to do in an honest way. That the audience sat there, the crowd sat there, the disciples sat there, listening to Jesus tell this story about a man with a lot of money who gives to that a lot of money to his servants, and his servants, the first two, double what, were, what was given to them, and that the master celebrates them, and they thought to themselves, that's weird. Because no one gets to the place of one having that amount of money. And doubling it, no matter how long this man was gone for, and have achieved that in an honest way. The second reason why I think they grew suspicious of the two servants being celebrated is that part of the reason why farmers and fishermen were part of the lower class is because they were overtaxed. 
Jesus is baptizing people in Luke chapter uh, 3. He's baptizing people in the Jordan, dunking them, you know, bam, boom, bam. He's just cranking them out. And then you get the elites of Jerusalem coming because they heard. They caught wind of what Jesus was doing. Who's this dude? We knew about John the Baptist. We got this other guy. He's talking crazy. He's doing some crazy stuff. Let's go check him out. The elites come to where he's baptizing folks, and among them are tax collectors. And they're persuaded by the work of Jesus. And they asked him, Luke chapter 3, verse 13, if you want to reference it, they asked him, what must we do? And Jesus' response is shocking, but perhaps not so much when I read this story. He says to them, this is what you do. Don't collect any more than you've been authorized. That Jesus understood, in part at least, that tax collectors were overburdening the people with their overtaxation. And that in some ways, these farmers and fishermen, all from the region of Galilee, who were already ostracized for being mixed race, were being overburdened by overtaxation. And that in some senses, these farmers and these fishermen were kept in that class or on the margins because of state activities. It was often the case that the rich and the powerful accumulated their wealth at the expense of the lower class. But another reason that I think that it made the crowd suspicious of the two servants in the story being celebrated is considering the ideal of society of that time. The ideal of first century Palestine or of Mediterranean life at this time is community, not individualism. It's stability, not self-advancement. Dr. Bruce Molina in his book, The New Testament World, Insights from Cultural Anthropology, he says, anyone trying to accumulate inordinate wealth imperiled the balance or equilibrium of society and was thus understood to be dishonorable. That the goal of society at that time, or rather not the goal, but the ideal of the way that people existed with one another was not individual but communal. It was one of the things that I deeply appreciated about my immigrant parents who came from another part of the world, um, where community was everything, where things were shared among people, and where burdens were carried among the community. The people that Jesus is telling this story would have been familiar with the warnings of Exodus 16, 16, where Israel is told not to keep surplus. The audience that Jesus is talking to would have been familiar with Leviticus 25, where God warns them against the profiting off the poor. The audience that Jesus is talking to would have been very familiar with what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 5, verse 8. 
where he says, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room and you alone are left in the land. Something that perhaps is so profound in our day and age, in our cultural moment. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room and you alone are left in the land. You know, the two servants, the more I read this story, the more I wrestled with it. I told uh, uh, Pastor Jenny earlier that I almost emailed her earlier this week telling her that I couldn't preach. The text was just too complicated for me. It was too complex. But I felt the urge to press forward uh, because I felt as though God was clearing some things up for me. The more I read this passage, the two servants feel as harsh and as greedy as their master. Both parties, both the master and the servants felt equally evil to me. And I had to resist the temptation to assume that the man in the story was Jesus. I couldn't, I couldn't put Jesus in that position. I couldn't understand him in that. And I wonder if that's what perhaps Matthew 24 was giving us a hint to, just a chapter before this story. If maybe Jesus was already beginning to allude to this understanding. Chapter 24, or excuse me, chapter 23, verse 15, when Jesus says this to the religious leaders of his day. He says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. The two servants being celebrated feel as evil to me as the master who's celebrating them. And I'm going to be honest with y'all, church, it was at this point that I wondered if the, if the third servant felt like the hero in the story. I wonder if it was at this point that the third servant felt like the hero who stands up against greed and exploitation. Afraid, as he said, he was afraid. But he stood up against greed and exploitation, but he paid the ultimate price to stand up. He's stripped, as verses 28 to 30 tell us, after standing up to his master, after saying, "Ah, you are a harsh man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you didn't scatter, so I just... I just dug it in a hole. He's stripped from everything and cast into darkness. I started to wonder at this point of the story if, if the third, third servant, there was something about him that we needed to pay close attention to. 
It was also at this point that I started to wonder if Jesus is being a little autobiographical here. And instead of assuming that he's the man that leaves on a journey, that Jesus is perhaps the third servant who reveals and critiques the ways of this power-hungry, greedy world. I wondered if this was the point of the parable that precedes this one, parable of the bridesmaids, where we are encouraged to remain awake, alert, and vigilant, but not only to the second coming of Jesus, but how the spirit of Jesus is already here. And has already come and is at work against the evil of this world. And I wondered if it wouldn't be too far-fetched to believe this. It almost didn't feel far-fetched since Jesus is just days away from being betrayed. It didn't feel far-fetched to me to understand Jesus as the third servant because he was just a few days away from being betrayed, arrested, castigated, punished, and cast off into the darkness of a cross that would ultimately take his life. Utter darkness. And just as the third servant does... Jesus tells the truth about the corruption of the religious world. In chapter 23, again, just a few chapters before this, Jesus gives seven woes to the religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes, you hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, you travel the land only to make one convert and you make them twice as fit for hell as you are. Woe to you, you blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. You are like whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if I had lived in the days of my ancestors, we would have taken part in the shedding of their blood. And then he calls them snakes and brood of vipers. And then he ends that string of accusations, these woes, and he says this in verse 37, chapter 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. Jesus stands up to the religious leaders. Just in, in just a few days, he's arrested. And he stands up to both the religious leader of his time and the Roman officials. He stands up to them. And they castigate him and cast him off. It was that same group that put him on the cross. And just as the third servant does, Jesus tells the truth about the corruption of Rome. And they greenlight the execution. 
It sounds like power to gaslight truth tellers. When power is deceitfully accumulated, it will always gaslight people telling the truth. And the same is true for Jesus. But perhaps, and I'm rounding out my time here, perhaps this is also how the parable offers us fresh vision for the world today. You know, when I read this story on its own, the parable feels complicated and suspicious. If I just read this parable on its own and forget the context that it's placed in. It feels suspicious and complicated. If I, read it to, uh, if I read it on its own, I'm tempted to assign meaning to the characters and behaviors that leave us with a skewed vision of who Jesus is and his mission to the world. If I read it on its own, I'm tempted to see that advancement or production at the expense of what is true love and charity is perhaps a more important and noble characteristic of God's church, and that is scary to me. But when I read the next story, the one that immediately follows this one, I realize that the actions of the third servant feel more like the life of someone influenced by the kingdom of God. Let me read you 34 to 36. Jesus talking about separating the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those that are on the right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Check this out. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Telling the truth about corruption and greed, whether it's in individuals or in systems, in ourselves or in others. Resisting the evil to use people for selfish gain gets you cast out by the world system, but it brings you close into God's system. It brings you to where Jesus is. Jesus is with the neglected. Jesus is with the oppressed. Jesus is with the burdened. Jesus is with with the cast off. Jesus so closely identifies with these groups that he says he can be confused for them. That kindness, generosity, service, and love to them or to others is the same as doing those acts to Jesus himself. Jesus stood in the face of religious leaders and said, I don't want your system. Jesus stood in the face of Rome and said, I don't want your system. Jesus stood in the face of Satan himself in Matthew chapter 4 and said, I don't want your kingdoms. I don't want what you have to offer. I am coming bringing something radically different from what you're used to. Church, I wonder if this parable is not about the stewardship of our gifts and abilities, something that I think I believed for far too long. (laughs) I wonder if this parable is not about stewardship of gifts and abilities, but rather a parable about resistance. 
resisting greed that crushes our neighbors, resisting production that is willing to exploit the world around us, resisting the fear that motivates our hunger for more, resisting the urge to read the Bible as if it were written to the United States of America. Church, look, the Bible is replete with calls and stories and encouragements to be a good steward of all that God has given us. And we should be. But I don't need this story to be about that. I wonder if I need this story to be about what it is. Resistance. Maybe the fresh vision that this parable offers our world is a church empowered by the courage of Jesus to be radically kind and good and just. Maybe the fresh fresh vision is a church empowered by the courage of Jesus to resist evil and selfish gain. Maybe the fresh vision is a church empowered by the hope of Jesus to believe that the kingdom of God is here, although in part, but here nonetheless and made accessible to us through his spirit. How does this story critique and reveal the way we live? But also, how does it offer us fresh vision for the way we could live? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, Spirit, I pray that you would do uh, what I never could, um, which is to lead us from understanding into transformation. Help us to uh, see where we need to see, perceive where we need to perceive. Uh, Would you do that for us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.